Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Well, I am delighted to welcome Theragun Gen 4. Things are stressful right now, right? And uh, by the way, you can't necessarily just go out and get a massage. All these things are closed in some states. That's why I'm so delighted to bring Theragun to you guys. I love this handheld percussive therapy device. It, I, it, I'm sorry, but it does a better job than massage therapists. I, no, no disrespect to massage therapists. They're great. They're wonderful. They're professionals. I'll be damned if I don't get more out of this scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, power, and quiet now. This is all new Gen 4 Theragun. It's a proprietary brushless motor. It's so quiet. My dogs used to freak. I, I like these devices, and my dog would always freak out when I would use it on myself. Now, this one, he doesn't even notice I'm using it. And by the way, there's a smaller version, too, that I bring when I travel. I literally bring it around with me. I can't be without this stuff. So trust me, you'll be happy with Theragun. It is an excellent device. Try Theragun risk-free for 30 days. There is no substitute for Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need. Starting at only $199, go to Theragun, T-H-E-R-A-G-U-N, theragun.com slash Drew. Go right now. Get your Gen 4 Theragun today. You will thank me. That is theragun.com slash D-R-E-W, not Dr. Drew, just Drew, theragun.com slash Drew. Everybody, welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, those in the city to uh, say, thank you for listening to my pod, that I have a maybe a little unhealthy uh, preoccupation with Sean Carroll, the uh, the molecular, bi- the uh, the particle physicist that we talked to, or the cosmologist, and uh, I listen to his podcast, and then I cherry pick his guests because I think to myself, I want to talk to that person. I'm dying to talk to that person. And today, we're going to do just that with Sarah Imari Walker. You can follow her at Sarah underscore Imari, I-M-A-R-I. Also, her website is emergence.asu.edu. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. It is a pleasure. Uh, let me give, go through more of your uh, pedigree here. Professor in school in the School of Earth and Space Exploration, Deputy Director of the Beyond Center, Associate Director of the Center for Biosocial Complex Systems, which is kind of what I'm interested in, Sarah, is the sort of emergent phenomenon and biosociality systems and how they how they operate. Yeah. Uh, you want to start there, perhaps? Sure. Um, so I, I think that's a pretty big. It's huge. Theory. I know. It's like it's like asking a cardiologist and in this. Tell me about the heart. Tell me about. The, but yeah, I, thought, yeah. I, I, thought, um, I figure you have a starting place, and I'll, I'll just chase you after you start. Well, um, I mean, I guess a sort of part of your question breaks down to understanding essentially what we are. So I think yeah. um, a lot of us are really interested in understanding sort of the current state of the world now and, and how it is. Um, but I'm an astrobiologist, and so I'm also interested in thinking not just about life on Earth and our current civilization on Earth and, um, you know, what its properties and promise for the future are, but also whether we can generalize that to life beyond Earth and how do we think about these things um, in a deeper sense. Um, and so for me, sort of the question about biology and complexity ultimately reduces down to a question of what life is and how do we think about that question scientifically and can we actually really start to get at that um, after you know several thousand years philosophizing. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, Arist- Aristotle <laughs> defined it as something that moves, <laughs> just yeah. some, something biological that's able to propagate uh, uh, right. But but it's obviously something far different. 
And I think I'm not sure if you were I don't remember if you were talking to Sean about this or not, but I know he sort of sees this as avoiding equilibrium and a story about uh, entropy. Yeah, so so I have sort of similar training to Sean in that my background is actually in theoretical physics, so I, I resonate on some of those ideas. Um, but I think, um, and I think part of the motivation of um, proposing something like what is driving life is that it's a system out of equilibrium, and therefore we can explain it as such. Um, is really trying to get at this idea that there might be some fundamental explanation for what life is. But my perspective on that is actually that we don't have the right frameworks for thinking about that problem properly yet. Um, And so I often actually will make the argument that what is going to be required is not just physics as we know it, but some kind of new physics, um, which is why I get excited thinking about biological and complex systems, because it really represents a new frontier for science. Um, And where I think um, we really are missing pieces of the puzzle is to really think about what information is and how information um, uh, can actually be a physical thing. Um, And so um, you and I right now are interacting through information technology, and that's not necessarily exactly what I mean when I'm talking about information. Um, We can also talk about information in a cell. So people are pretty aware that, you know, we have uh, genetic information encoded in our genome. So DNA, you know, is a a string of letters that carry some information of, you know, what eye color we have or something. Um, And so um, it seems to be that there's this kind of general um, sort of pervasive dialogue in biology about information being important, but we don't really have a clear concept of what that is, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't apply universally. Um, And so the way that I um, think it's sort of uh, more compelling to think about it is to think about um, the kind of things that biology can do because we use information or we process information that other physical systems can't do. Um, and what I'm, one example I really like to give with that, which I think kind of makes a, a, it conceptually a little bit clearer exactly what I'm trying to get at, um, is to think just about the fact that um, we're living on the surface of a planet right now that has uh, technological civilization. So that's us and all of the technology that we've created, including all of the wonderful Zoom uh, mm meetings that are allowing us to connect with people and our computers and social media and all these other things. Um, and, and part of that actually enables um, us to do things that, that we wouldn't be able to do without that technology. And one, one such example is launching satellites into space. So people get really excited about rocket launches and these kind of things, but don't really think about, well, what's the fundamental explanation for that? And in this case... Wait, wait, the explanation um, for why we get excited or for what we're doing with a rocket launch? Um, so why, uh, what we're doing, like what we're doing as a planet when we're rocking, we're, we're launching satellites into space. Well, what do I mean as a planet? I mean, um, we have, it's not an individual person that's rock, uh, launching rockets into space. It's actually, um, you know, it's a collective, um, process that requires, um, a long history of learning about how the laws of physics work. Um, which if you could go back in human history and say, well, that might start with Newton, but you also have to, you know, kind of go back maybe even further if you want to think more abstractly about the kind of knowledge that's required or, or even thinking about biological evolution over, um, you know, a several billion year time scale. So life emerged early on this planet. It's been learning about its environment and learning how to do things in its environment for 4 billion years. And humans, whatever kind of, physical system we are, are doing that um, at an accelerated pace. 
And one of the things that we've done is discover something that we call the laws of nature, the laws of physics. Um, those enable us to do things like launch satellites into space that would be impossible without that kind of knowledge. Um, and so that's actually what I mean by information is but, that but there's on. this ability well, I wanna, I wanna to dig a little to deeper. I want to dig a little deeper right there. Yeah, go so, for it. So, so does that mean that something inherent in life other than survival causes it to continue to reach out beyond customary boundaries? Is that is yeah. that? Go that's ahead. kind of that's that's sort of the the underlying premise of. Um, uh, sort of my working set of ideas trying to construct a theory for what life is. So um, life is something that's constantly reaching. Um, in some sense, yes. Um, I The way I describe it, which is going to be a, a little bit um, uh, sort of more abstract and technical, but we can kind of pick into what I mean, is that life is actually the physics of how information structures the physical world. Um, uh, okay. And Phys- so phys- um, part physics. of that is this reaching that you're talking about, which is when you have information, you can do more than you can do without information. And so life, it actually enables the universe to create things that would not be possible otherwise. Do you think information is the right word? Is there a no. word like information? <laughs> yeah, because I, I, you know, I've been doing a lot with the immune system lately because of COVID. And a lot of what we're talking about is information processing by immune cells and how they move as they collect that information and yeah. uh, and, and 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 so that's a you know major major issue right now uh, yeah. that's having significant benefit in terms of us reaching out beyond our customary boundaries we're doing things with that that's restoring immune function but it's the it's the information or in, in interfering with the information frankly that's helping us yeah so i think um I think I think you're spot on actually with with that kind of example and also questioning the use of the word information in this context. And I think actually this is one of the hardest things when you work at these boundary questions um, that we really don't know the answer to and we don't even have the right conceptual framework for asking of the questions is that we're really um, limited by word choice because um, usually there's I mean, a, usually even, there's even a- Usually there's Sorry. another language out there that has it. You know what I mean? If you yeah. look, look, you know, somewhere somebody's going to find a, in, in, a, a king, you know, some uh, in, into in, what, what in, Inuit, some Inuit language that has that has information that meets. And I think for me, the piece that's missing in terms of the English worse information is yeah. is temporality. Yes, because you are talking about a temporally, you, you know, uh, temporality figures into what this information is, let alone yeah, how it's so, used. So if I, if, if I have like sort of my um, personal word choice that I would prefer to use, that's a better word in the English language at least, I, I like to talk more in terms of causal structure, mm. um, which has that kind of oh temporality boy, in it, loaded. but people tend that's to understand qu- more that's, information speak than... But, but causal has a loaded philosophy, right? Yeah, and that's also why I, I, I tend to not use that word as much either. Um, and also like in part of it. Um, so when I was very early in my career, I was working on some ideas associated with this idea of top down causation, which is, is related to some of these things that we've been talking about with this is the idea that like, um, higher scales. So like, like mind, like thoughts could actually intervene on the material world and change material outcomes. Um, and I think, um, I don't think that idea is wholly wrong, but I think the language that it was cast in, in terms of this top down, um, uh, language was also very hindering to get at the right kind of physics. So 
Um, so actually, like in my research group, we have like this long list of all these words we're not allowed to use, but mm-hmm. we use them all the time. And they're things like complexity, information, causation, decision making. And all of these things, you know, have um, sort of everyday uses and they even have scientific uses, but they're not adequate to really describe the new concepts that I think that we need to understand what life is. You also opened with physics of information, which, which caught my ear. Yeah. So, um, so that part I think is really important because I think when we talk and, and, and this gets to the, some of the points I was making before, when we're talking about information, we think about information as being a very abstract property. Um, and so, um, so uh, it might be something like, you know, the words I'm saying right now are conveying information to you. Um, but I'm not really thinking about the fact that the words, you know, were first manifest, um, you know, in, in the chemistry in my brain and the neurons in my brain. And then they were conveyed to you by me speaking. And then, you know, they my computer is, um, you know, recording those and then sending them to you via the Internet. And then you're, you know, hearing them. And so that same information is actually going through a lot of different Um, material representations. And so um, I think that's actually the really interesting property about information and what it is, is it's not tied to a particular physical system. It can move between them and somehow retain the same properties or the same meaning. And meaning is a really hard word um, in science in general, but particularly in physics, we don't really have a way of understanding what it is for something to mean something, which is one of the reasons that I got interested in sort of the idea of causation, because it, if, if the meaning is actually the causes that are carried with that part of information, then, then there's some way of talking about it in more concrete terms. Say that again. If the meaning is the causes, say that again. Yeah, so, so, meaning, so meaning in my mind is the kind of things that that information could actually cause in the physical world. Um, so um, so is that, in the is sense that, is that, that just um, a definition there's a transformation, and if you if – you, uh, if, um, uh, uh, let's see, how can I give an example? Um, so, so say, uh, you know, I get a really nasty text from someone or something, depending on how I interpret that, I might have different actions, right? So it's something, something about the meaning of that to me as the subjective observer actually has consequences to how I behave. And I think that principle and idea is actually much more general to what we're talking about in terms of the physics of life. Um, that there's some, there's, uh, there's a, and this gets into some of the, the relationship to information and information theory. There's a sender and a receiver, and they have, you know, and it's really about how the receiver interprets the information that they're receiving as far as what their future behavior, what their future state is. Um, You're getting into some non-physics when you get into agency, though, yeah. right? Agency, yeah, and, well, well. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and that's one of the arguments. I, I mean, I, I started at the outside saying we needed new physics. So I think agency obviously traditionally hasn't been a part of physics. And when I talk about physics, I don't mean physics as we've studied it for the last 400 years. When I think about what physics is, I think physics is um, the ability of the human mind to try to understand um, very abstract and deep principles about the world. And at some point, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the human mind, presumably other minds, if they, if they do exist in the universe, might have the same capacity. But at some point, those things also have to start describing themselves because they're also a fundamental component of reality. And so and so, so that's sort of like the next level that physics has to get to is to understand not just the objective world of atoms bashing together as we've understood that so far, but to understand the world where you now have subjective 
physical systems, things we call agency in the world, actually affecting dynamical outcomes, can like you, actually affecting the future evolution of those systems based can, on their subjective experience. I, of I think the next sort of topic would be emergence, would it not? Yes. So go yes. ahead. Um, <laughs> so are you asking me what I think emergence is? Yes, because I, I, that's what I remember catching my attention in the last time I heard you yeah. speak. Yeah. So. Go yeah. Ahead. So, um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm very deeply, um, interested in it for, for the, the, if, if only for the reason that I myself am an emergent property, right? So, um, maybe, <laughs> so that's kind of a maybe. selfish view on it, but, <laughs> maybe. but it is, it is intriguing to me, um, when you think about what life is that you, you can't take a living system apart down to the molecules and atoms and observe any of the features that are really associated with life. There's nothing special about the molecules in our bodies, um, that, um, you know, they don't have like some kind of vital force associated with them or something. They're just molecules. Um, and so somehow when you get the right groups of molecules coming together, they become animated in a way that we describe as being alive. Um, and so life itself is an emergent property. Um, what is particularly intriguing to me is sort of there's two kind of facets, I think, of emergence. One is um, there's a description of that system that exists at a higher level that doesn't exist at the lower level. So mm. um, so maybe part of what um, I was just talking about is that, oh, oh, well, life doesn't exist in an individual molecule or atom. It is a property of collections of molecules and atoms. But if we just got a large enough collection together and they had the right properties, we could describe this thing that's life at some larger scale of the system as a collective property of the system. Uh, and so that's interesting of itself um, and already a hard problem. Um, but what's really intriguing to me is that sometimes those collective properties, like the thing that we call life, can actually then in turn affect the lower level properties, um, like the properties of molecules and atoms. Um, and so I can give a concrete example of that, which is just to think about, um, and this is something I do in my work quite a lot, is think about this idea of chemical space. So, um, so for those, you know, listeners that are familiar thinking about physical space, you know, we're, we're told the universe is huge. It's, you know, it's very huge, billions of light years across, um, you know, and, um, but we don't really think about the space of molecules as being really huge. And it's actually, infinitely huge also. It's just a combinatorial space. Um, and so if you start trying to connect carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and phosphorus and sulfur and just really basic elements, you, you get, um, you know, in, in, in small collections of atoms, you get such a combinatorial explosion that there's actually not enough resources in the, in the universe even to make um, fairly low, like all fairly low molecular weight atoms. And if you get to, to the scale of proteins and things that you're completely out of luck, there's, there's no possibility the universe could ever create every possible protein. There's, there's just too many possibilities of um, things of equivalent mass as far as how many atoms you could combine together. So biology selects out a few specific ones. Um, and so, um, so this, this idea of these emergent properties of living things making new things possible is pretty evident when you're talking about this idea of chemical space because we know there's, or at least we can conjecture, there's a boundary of how much the universe can make in, in the absence of life, how complex a molecule can be or what molecules can be produced. Um, but when you get to living systems, they do make things like proteins and DNA and very complex molecules. And then when you get to technological systems, um, you know, we make things like pharmaceutical drugs. I mean, this is very very relevant um, to all of the stuff associated with COVID because we have, you know, massive industry now trying to make a vaccine, producing um, you know, new possibilities um, in the space of molecules, basically, um, as far as how we can think about these things. 
Um, and so, um, so, so there it's very clear that um, these emergent properties, this thing we call life, actually does have physical consequences on lower scales of reality in the sense that technology, by building up all of this infrastructure, can make molecules that are impossible to make without technology. Um, and, you know, you think about things like taxol or, or some of these, these more complex molecules that, that we produce um, via industry. And so I think that's a really interesting example. But also, even if you just think about, um, you know, like the Large Hadron Collider, we make conditions that haven't been seen since the Big Bang. Um, well, what is doing that? Well, what is doing that is emergent property. That's us. It's a collections of atoms that are reaching down to scales of um, physics that are impossible to actually, you know, force these processes to happen without having uh, agency and intelligence. So, so those are sort of, that was a little bit long winded, but those are the two facets of emergence that I think are interesting. One is that when you move up in scales of, of, of reality, you start to see new properties. Um, and the example I give is obviously life. Um, but then also that sometimes those properties actually can change, um, you know, the future trajectory of those systems depending on what those are so so well, it's, um, it's, I, have, I have a couple of thoughts one yeah, is sure. um that's how ecological systems work yes. right that's how life systems work you know so a tree grows and it creates a new environment under the tree and then something exploits that and that creates another new environment and so this is something innate in life that it it changes yes it's always changing everything and but it's creating opportunity in a strange way whenever it does so which is kind of an interesting idea. Um, but but what about threshold phenomena? As I hear you talk about the uh, you know, congregation of uh, phosphorus, nitrogen, and oxygen, whatever, um, I, I immediately thought to myself, well, there have been a few there, – there's got to have been some threshold phenomenon that occurred that we don't really know much about yet. Um, for instance, how – a mitochondria slipped inside a cell and created a, a right. factory. Well, that's one to me, one massive threshold phenomenon that literally has to have come from outer space, literally, right? I mean, it's some bacteria that came in from somewhere, and who knows where that evolved from? Are you with me on that at least? Um, not necessarily the coming from outer space part, but maybe the rare event. Is that the kind of idea of a threshold that you're coming from? Well, so do you agree that that mitochondria were at one time autonomous bacterium? Yes. Okay, so they they came from somewhere. They don't have to have traveled in. They have to have traveled in, but they came well, from somewhere. So I think they, actually the so, so there's different hypotheses about yeah. um, the origins of mitochondria, but I think um, I I my my impression was that it was a bacteria host cell in an archaea that invaded the bacterial host. Um. That's, or is this, no, that's a eukaryote. Sorry, yeah. not a mitochondria. You're well, right; it's bacteria. Well, well but right. but even even so, my my thinking was, why all of a sudden one bacteria just does this? It's like something was <laughs> unique about that bacteria, and we don't really. It's just like all of a sudden, just one <laughs> is able to do this. And I mean, to me, it feels like something from the outside. Something came in, but anyway, that's yeah, just my feeling oh my about it. Uh, and then the other the other threshold I was thinking. Um, is you know, uh, um, ribonucleic acids. Where, yeah. where where did ribonucleic acids get into the mix? Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's another threshold phenomena. Am I am I correct, or am I just fantasizing? 
No, no, no. I think um, I think I'm, I'm just trying to understand a little bit more clearly what you mean by well, threshold. I, I, I mean, that- like where you're talking. I, I just you were talking about the hard problem, right? Yeah. Of description at a higher level, and I was thinking about, and you made the case that you can't just throw a bunch of atoms together and get right. what we got. And I was thinking, God, and there were a couple of things that I don't know what – something happened. <laughs> something went on yeah. and, and then things forever changed, these sort of yes. threshold things. But I go, agree go with ahead. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I do think – I mean this is actually one of the really perplexing um, things about biological evolution in general and also like sort of the current state of where we are. Um, is that if we look in the past of like the evolution of life on our planet, it seems like there were several events that were so exceedingly unlikely um, that it's it's very odd that they happened. Right. Um, so I think I think you cited two of them. Yeah. Um, and so so one one perspective on that is that that's sort of an artifact of post selection. So it's really difficult actually to reason effectively about. Um, what's happened in the past if our existence is contingent on those events. Well, you know where my head goes? It's just this is my own, this is my own personal little – this is why yeah. – I, I guess this is why I was talking about outer space is that both the mitochondria and the ribonucleic acid feel – I have no business talking about feelings when we're talking about science. But it just it just seems to me like that evolved somewhere else. <laughs> that That's not part of the evolutionary track of – cells. It just like evolved somewhere else and got involved. Uh, it sort of feels like, yeah. you know what I mean? It sort of feels like that and then got incorporated somehow. But so maybe, maybe on it was on Earth. Feeling. I think intuition actually plays a major role in science and I think people um, uh, underappreciate the fact that a lot of major conceptual leaps are, are made because of that kind of feeling. Yeah. But my personal perspective on it is when I feel like something's not the right ex- not quite right, it doesn't mean that I need to just make another explanation for that thing. It's because I'm not thinking about that problem right. Yeah. Um, and so I think um, in particular with like the ribonucleic acid, I, I, I'm assuming you're referring to sort of the idea of like the RNA world scenario that, you know, on a prebiotic earth, um, RNA was produced abiotically somehow and then kickstarted an evolutionary process and then life emerged um, from, you know, these RNA molecules that were evolving. And I don't think personally that's, that's, that's a, the right hypothesis. Right. That's, a, that's, an, that's an empty jar, right? It's just it's yeah. a, this waving hands. It, it, right. It, and it, I think part of the problem is that you need to have a scaffold to get to RNA. Yes. So you need a, yes. a chemical system to build a slightly more complex chemical system to build a slightly more complex yep. chemical system. Yep. And then by the time you get to RNA, RNA actually has other chemical systems it starts controlling yep. that have already scaffolded it. And then you actually get the kind of feedback of these higher levels, the RNA being some kind of maybe in, like, like an information layer, quote unquote, knowing that word is not the greatest, well, control these m- metabolic processes or something. Um, it's one of the reasons it's so fascinating in the context of what you were talking about because very explicitly it is an information system. Yes. And which is which, which is wild. Which, yeah. Which is sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and so let's go let's now circle all the way back to your original definition where you're talking about systems out of equilibrium and we haven't even talked about entropy yet, right? Do you right. know do you know how that figures into this? Um, actually I do. I don't, I, I mean, there's, there's certain things that are really quite funny about, um, being taught to be a physicist. And one of them is that we should accept entropy as like this godlike principle, um, that you can't violate. And there's also like this famous Eddington quote that, you know, if your theory doesn't agree with the second law of thermodynamics, you have nothing, you know, but you feel but shame. But I actually, (laughs) I, I don't think it's formulated properly, um, to be honest. And part of the reason is, 
um, entropy, it works for thermodynamics and it works for simple physical systems like we've talked about before. But when you apply it to life, it seems quite odd. And I think part of the reason is entropy is this concept that's based on um, counting um, uh, things, right? So, so I can say disorder increases in a system because I can count the number of states in the system and I can tell you that the number of possible states will increase as a function of time. But that has an implicit assumption that I'm counting the right things and I know how to count them. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is like if you have a simple um, – uh, you know, particle in a gas, which is the kind of canonical model a physicist would use, it's pretty easy to label the state of a particle in a box and say where it is in the box. When I'm talking about, um, I get to the level of chemistry and molecules that are very complicated in themselves, and then they're moving in the box, like, do I, how, how, what degrees of freedom do I actually count and how do I actually think about those things? And so I don't think the concept of entropy itself is wrong, but I think the way that we formulated it and can think about it um, is not exactly right. And and Erwin um, Schrodinger um, was, you know, this very famous physicist that wrote this book called What is Life in 1944, proposing this idea of negentropy because it seems like life violates the second law. And there's all kinds of resolutions to that um, based on the fact that life is an open system. But I think part of the, the part that's missing is that a lot of times when we're talking in um, – in physics about counting things, we talk about counting the objects, the, the the states of the world, like what do I actually have in my box and where is it? But we don't always talk about counting the paths. Um, and what I mean by that is we don't count the kinds of transitions that those systems can undergo. Um, and I think this, this is actually a sort of like a critical missing piece about what is necessary to explain life because it's, it's about this generative process. Um, and so there is this kind of idea idea that there might be an entropy over paths and there are people that work in non-equilibrium physics that are working on lots of related ideas to that um, and there's even been this proposal on causal entropic forces as a possible explanation for um, intelligence which is an entropy over future paths that if you have an intelligent agent it might be maximizing its future possibilities um, and and if you if you maximize future possibilities instead of maximizing number of states you actually get intelligent like behavior and simple systems um, so um, so I think those kind of things are actually really interesting as sort of uh, entropy is not wrong, but maybe we need to redefine the concept or have new concepts in order to actually be able to really understand what life is. Wow. That is, that's, that's probably the densest part of what we've been talking about so far, right? There's a lot packed into that. Yeah, that there is a lot packed in there. And actually, even some of it, if I was going to get even denser with sort of um, you know, the intellectual um, edifice of like all the things that we have to challenge to reconceptualize life. Um, I think what I was just talking about is also deeply related to this, um, this, this traditional concept we've had in physics about the laws of nature being immutable and fixed as a function of time and only the states are allowed to evolve, which is exactly the way that Newton formulated the world. Um, but when you get into the last century, um, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of um, proposals that, um, particularly with respect to biology, that um, the the laws or rules that govern the system might themselves change as a function of the state of the system. Um, and th this idea is actually related to um, deeply to the idea of self-reference. Um, so if a system can reference itself, which which we do intellectually because we can think about ourselves. Um, 
uh, and also um, is sort of like part of Girdle's proposal about mathematics and incompleteness. Um, if, if a system can reference itself, you have these, this idea of self-referential systems or self-referential dynamics. Um, you would actually be able to have the rules depend on the state and then the rules would change along with the states. Um, and that kind of system we actually really don't have adequate explanations for, but it does have a path dependence to the dynamics in the same way that this causal entropy I was talking about will have a path dependence. So I think at some level, those ideas are very deeply related, but it means that we can no longer treat transitions in the physical world different than physical things in the the world. We have to kind of put them on equal footing. It's like a unification of laws and states of nature or unification of paths and objects or paths and states. Um, So so are you tilting towards one system? Um. It, uh, sorry, I didn't hear the question. Well, it sounds like – by the way, there's some weird – Gary, some weird technical stuff going on where it sounds like somebody's playing a didgeridoo in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I moved actually. I think um, they're actually mowing the lawn. Oh. <laughs> That's <laughs> so hysterical. I'm, I apologize That's for that. That's all right. It was a quite odd sound. But yeah. um, it, it sounded like you were sort of hinting at – in terms of that there's, there's sort of a, a – one state that state is transitional if that makes sense are you, ta- are you no, t- i don't i don't think there's one state i think um and i didn't mean to imply that i all i mean to imply is that i think we don't understand how to um adequately um describe physical systems where the actual physical systems or objects that exist affect the future evolution of the yeah, system. Yeah, I, I hear that. The self-referentiality yeah. and the future yeah. change. The, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and life is not a closed system. That's the other thing. I mean, yeah, exactly. all of our yeah. physics is really on closed systems, and that's where right. we kind of jump the shark a little bit automatically. But but the other thing I'm, I'm thinking, again, my thoughts are half-baked, but I'm thinking about your path dependency and, and the, the nature of probability in biology. Yeah. Do you have to think about that? Because it, it, it just feels to me – again, this is back to intuitions – that that, n- that probability is at, at, the, at the center of biological systems. Uh, obviously, it is in terms yeah. of basic physical chemistry too in terms of electron clouds and where things are likely to be or not likely to be. But it really becomes, I think, more pertinent in, in, in biological systems. And, and I guess the first question would be uh, – is there such a thing as probability and does it have a major role in biological systems and, and or is it just incomplete knowledge? Um, uh, that's a fantastic question. I actually, um, I think this is really getting into like the, the deep part of the matter. And part of the thing that I grapple with most of the time is like, I think there's some intuition, um, you know, from the things I've been describing about what the physics of life is but finding the right framework to cast it in is really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there is some merit to taking like a probabilistic view of nature um, as being the right framework. Cause I can think of one of the things that life does is make low probability outcomes, higher probability. So life is almost like the physics of manip- manipulating the probabilities for certain processes happening. Oh, that's and, interesting. I never thought about yeah, that. Yeah. So, and so, so what the, living the, systems the, are. The self-referentiality and the changing the systems are both related to probability. Right, right. So, so it's sort of like 
um, you know, there might be sort of an a priori probability of events happening in the universe in the absence of life. But once you get living systems, um, they're actually intervening on those probability distributions and changing the shape of them and in the process, changing their own, you know, probabilities for existing and things. And so you, 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 it, it's a very um, interesting sort of way of framing the problem of what life is. Well, th- then um, again, I'm just following, I'm yeah, chasing you sure. down the path. This goes to another hard question, which I'm not going to ask you because it, it takes us completely in a different direction, but I'm going to ask you in a minute. I'll give you a breather and say, how'd you get into all this? Oh, um, Actually, it's kind of funny. I um, I went to community college when I was first starting college, and I just took all the science classes I could um, uh, because I like science. And then I took physics, and I just really loved the fact that we could describe the universe mathematically and potentially predict things and then actually discover them. Mm -hmm. And I remember being deeply infatuated with that. And then I thought I wanted to be a theoretical physicist after that. So I went through like my whole education doing that kind of thing. Um, But I was also really interested in sort of the creativity of science. Um, And so when I got to do my graduate work, um, my advisor suggested I work on this thing called astrobiology, which I never heard of and think about the origins of life rather than think about the origins of the universe, the kind of problems that the cosmology group I was in traditionally worked on. Um, And that actually was really eye-opening for me because I realized how little we know about these problems Mm -hmm. um, and that we really don't. We understand more about the atoms in our bodies than we do about us as living beings. And I was deeply intrigued by that. And I think I've been completely hooked on this problem ever since. Okay. Well, you've led me back to this other problem that I was going to (laughs) bring up and give you a breather from, but let's go dive into the nature of then free will. Oh, yeah. So tell me, how do you you deal with it? Do you come, are you a compatibilist? Are you, where where do you come in? um, So I think, um, so I should, I should first say that I think a lot of the things that are descriptive of life or seem odd about life should emerge from the underlying theory. So most of the time, like my sort of working set of assumptions about how I'm trying to think about what life is, is to take all the little bits and pieces that people have mentioned here or there and sort of accept them at face value and say, well, everybody's seeing something of the relevant physics and Mm. we need to figure out to integrate them to get to that deeper structure. Um, And so I actually do think that free will is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think um, that one of the reasons that um, uh, free will is real because of this idea that information can be causal. So, um, so that living systems, um, you know, affect these probability distributions or or whatever we're talking about or all the things that we've discussed before. So that means that there is some kind of, um, will in the universe and the fact that you might actually have some freedom in sort of setting the potential paths forward, I think is actually part of this um, kind of causal entropic force type thing I was talking about before that if physical systems have real free will um, and they are able to um, somehow um, affect the future distribution of possibilities, you would want as many systems like that as possible to maximize the future paths that the universe could have. Ooh, why? Um, because each one would actually be individual in some sense and not always 100% contingent on their history. And I don't know exactly how that works in practice as far as like the mechanistic details of the physics. It's just kind of an intuition that's consistent with some of the things I was talking about before. The universe would want that because it increases the probability of life surviving or the universe would want that just because 
I mean, the, the idea well, of the universe I, wants something uh, is already kind of funny, but go ahead. Yeah, so, so I think, um, I, so so sort of part of how I think about it is, um, like, the physics that we've described so far might be consistent with entropy as we know it because it's sort of maximizing states. But once you get to living physics, there's more paths possible than there are states. And so what life is doing is trying to maximize the paths because they're kind of the Ooh. dominant contributor to the entropy. That's and interesting. Path yeah. versus states. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think that's actually the, the key transition from uh, non-living physics to living physics is there's some critical threshold, which happens in chemistry because of that combinatorial explosion. And then you get into this sort of path-dependent physics. Um, and then um, and then once you're there, um, if you if you if you happen to in that sort of entropy maximization stumble upon agents that have this property that we call free will, which is just that they have some, um, you know, architecture for each agent having sort of independent sets of paths, and then the collection of them actually can maximize the entropy further. So, oh, so free will is a function of maximizing entropy. That's interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. So I haven't written that down uh, formally in a set of arguments. I suppose it could be done, but um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, it's interesting because most of the stuff, like, ultimately we want to prove this is the right physics, right? And I think the only place to do that is really to do it in chemistry in an original life experiment because that's the only place where you don't have so many layers of biological architecture and evolution that most of the physics is actually hidden by all these higher levels of layering on of the same physics. Um, but I do think that that explanation is consistent. With, well, the, the, it's, with, it's the entry maximization of free will is a phenomenological description a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, phenomena, sure. and you have to then first – you have to make a connection, which I don't naturally make, between physics and phenomenology. Yeah, yeah. That's a little bit tough. But I'm sure somebody it could do really it. really tough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these are all – I mean you spend your days thinking about these tough things. Yes, I do. And, and, then, you t- and then you communicate it to students? Yes, I do. How do do you do that? (laughs) And who are the students that are interested in this too? I'm interested in that. Um, Well, it depends on on what level of their education you're talking about. So most of the students I interact with on a daily basis are graduate students. Um, And right now I have nine PhD students in my group, which is a lot. Um, But part of um, my motivation for working with that particular group of students is they're all insanely bright. And and they come to me with these like problems they want to solve and these interesting things they're thinking about. Um, and, and if they kind of resonate with problems I'm interested in, then, then I feel like it's somebody I really want to work with. So just as a, a, a couple examples, like one of my students came in interested in laws of civilization. So I don't, I don't always work on social systems or think about civilizations, but, but she had this really deeply interesting question and, um, and it really resonated with how I think about what life is. And then I have other students that, you know, another student that wants to work on making AI think like humans and having a self-referential dynamic. And he wants to do that in neural networks. And um, that's sort of his long-term career goal. But that becomes really relevant to talking about some of the concepts of self-reference I was talking about or emergence, because you have to be able to have an emergent description in order to have a self-referential dynamic. Um, so, so those are just two examples, but basically all my students are, are like, they all have something that is tangential, but also deeply related to the things our group as a whole cares about. Um, and so I kind of, I kind of like that because it's a really creative atmosphere as far as like a lot of collaboration and, and ideas being generated that are, you know, Hopefully radical. Yeah, <laughs> we like to push the boundaries. Well, and, um, and you know, we've been we've been talking strictly descriptive and narratively. When you say your your students want to solve this problem, are they are they trying to build mathematical models? 
Yeah. So we do a lot of, um, so we're, we're a strictly theory group. We work yeah. with a lot of experimental collaborators, um, but we do a lot of um, mathematical modeling. We do a lot of um, computational modeling, a lot of like um, big data type analysis, hmm. um, uh, a lot of different things. That's um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, back to the AI thing. I'm going to sure. register an opinion about AI. Is And, you know, the, the thing about, because I do a lot of thinking about the human conscious experience and, and the brain and, yeah. you know, what we're... You know, Me too. Yeah. Cool. And, and, well, I believe consciousness is, is an emergent property of two people, at least starts with two people. It's not, it's a single brain cannot establish consciousness. It, it need, yeah. You need, you need, you need yourself reflected back to you. And it's that, it's yeah. that two brain system that is the, is the, cent, is yeah. the, the beginning of consciousness. And, and, and without that, I, I mean, if you're a feral child raised in the woods, when you come out of the woods, you don't have something we would call consciousness. You, you're, mm-hmm. you, you just don't have it. It, ha- it has to happen in the, in the context of re- connected, relating to other human beings. And to that end, uh, so much about uh, how we, like all the intuitions we were talking about today, are really, you know, we have a lot of neural material in our body that gives us sensibilities and information that we're not directly aware of, whether it's, you know, the sympathetic parasympathetic plexus over our abdomen or our chest. There's a lot of stuff that comes in that that's bodily based. And so I don't think you get human intelligence without a body. And, yeah, and and you don't I, get a and you don't get a body without a world, <laughs> you know what I mean? You, no, you, no, we, I completely agree. Yeah, so the, the central nervous system is embedded in a body, and the body's embedded in a world, and that's where intelligence comes from. Yes, I one hundred percent agree. So I should say with the caveat that I have a couple students that have come really wanting to work on AI and thinking about it as abstract software, and that is not how I personally think about it. Yeah, um, because I am I am very much in agreement with you that it's about the physical embodiment and how that embodiment interacts with the physical world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I I like I like your idea about the two person interaction. I think that's um, really intriguing. I have a colleague. Um, uh, Takashi Ikigami in Japan that has this really interesting idea that consciousness is actually contagious. And so if we want machines to be conscious, they have to catch it from humans, uh, um, which is kind of related to your, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's about it's the related, interaction. It, but if you, if, you, if you really study the first five years of life and w- w- the face-to-face interactions that we have yeah. with primarily I'm doing that mother. right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Little... Well, watch when the consciousness yeah. starts emerging. It, it's be, it's yeah. because of your reflecting back to that child exactly what he or she has experienced as a second order experience. You're like yeah. you're metabolizing it in a sense and giving it back to them in a way that they can understand it. Otherwise, it just it just goes out. It's 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 beyond the body boundary. It's just out. It's there. And and when it comes back as a metabolized form from another human being, it starts to build a structure. And I and I humbly believe that the insular cortex may be the core of that. There's a lot yeah. going on in the insular cortex. And I, uh, I also I, w- I would just add to that that I don't think that, like I, I think that that's most prominent in the early childhood. But I also noticed that people that think very deeply like really seek out other people that think very deeply because of that reflection aspect of it because you can't get deeper in your thought process or understand more about things unless you're interacting with other people that are sort of at a comparable like have thought that's that. really interesting I never thought about that but but my own personal experience was in I went to Amherst College and my life was transformed by being around smart people yeah, I, I was no, just, I'm just a, I'm acutely aware of it, and, and that 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 I, I was just like, whoa, these what's going on in that brain? I, I've never seen that before. Let me go spend some time over there, and, and I and I've sought it out ever since. I think that's if in a strange way, that's why I wanted to talk to you. You know, that's why I just I just yeah. automatically I want I want you to help me expand. And unfortunately, 
I don't think we live in a world with that's in uh, people are taught that, or at least they understand that, are able to deploy that very often. Because instead, people are getting tribal and, and closed, and the exact opposite of what they should be doing. Yeah, I think um, yes, and I, I think that's a deep concern. I think I think the best thing you can do is interact with people that challenge uh, how you think about things. Yeah, and not, and not be threatened by it. Just just yeah, because exactly. I mean, you're a very patient person. I mean, I'm asking all these crazy questions, and you're you're helping me build a new uh, my my brain's rewiring as we sit here and talk. I mean, that's what's happening. Now it's an old brain, so it may not stay that way very long. So <laughs> I may have to do it a few more times uh, to really get it to get it wired up. But uh, that's how it works. I mean, that's how our yeah, brain. that's true. Yeah. So uh, what what is uh, we got like five or ten more minutes? What what kinds of things preoccupy you these days? Um, I mean, where what, what like what turns you on? What interests you? What are you, what are you fascinated by? Um, I have a, a couple. Um, I guess pretty deep obsessions right now. Um, Good. One of, one of them I've been really obsessed about is trying to think about um, life as a planetary scale process and what what it is at a planetary scale. So this is sort of like a Gaian type view, but it came to. I, it from wait, I don't know what that is. What's Gaian? Uh, so Gaia is this hypothesis that Earth itself is potentially a living entity because it has these global feedbacks that regulate its state, and, nah. um, and it was wah, proposed wah. originally. What? <laughs> I don't know about that, but go ahead. Yeah. I get it. No, I, I but but I think it depends on what you mean by what life is, right? Yeah. So I think I think people have this idea that um, you know life is cellular and life. Um, you know, is about uh, reproduction of individual um, entities and evolution and, and those kind of sort of canonical definitions. My yes. definition of life is obviously a lot broader than that because my, de- um, like, it's not a definition. It's a working hypothesis that's trying to construct a theory. And, and that theory is about how information structures the physical world and living processes are the ones about how information structures matter through space and time. And that's a process that emerged with the original life, but has been expanding um, through space and time ever since and building up these hierarchies. And so the natural boundary for that is the planetary scale. And mm-hmm. so um, so I, I don't necessarily think l- the Earth is alive in the Gaian sense, but I do think that living physics is manifested on pl- planetary scale. Want to give um, you another shot at information? What, what other word we might use for information? Um. Because every, every time you use it, I think state dependent dynamics, um, you know, or, or path dependence um, might be another better way of saying it. I feel um, like pathways is almost better than information. Pathways, yeah, yeah. sure, we could yeah. use that. Okay. Um, but one of the things that I've been doing a lot, which is is related to that, is is one of my like my my research group is divided into um, a few different teams. Um, one of them focuses on physics of life, which is this kind of informational physics stuff. One focuses on physics of intelligence, which deals with consciousness and um, and language and, and different things. And another one does biosignatures, which is mostly focused on exoplanets right now. And then the other one is this kind of uh, planetary scale biochemistry. And another way to think about it is not necessarily planetary scale biochemistry, but more like a statistical physics of biochemistry. Because basically what we do is we take all of the... Um, large databases that catalog genomic information on organisms across Earth and um, metagenomes, so like ecosystem level genomes are across Earth, and then construct the biochemistry that that those systems are known to catalyze, and then study statistical patterns across that. Ooh, that's interesting. Um, 
Yeah. So, so the idea is our, we, we don't think that this particular molecules of life are necessarily universal to all biological systems, but the patterns in the molecules probably are, again, going back to that idea of the emergent process. So if we can look at the statistical regularities in the um, molecules and reactions life uses, maybe we can use those and like pick up those patterns and put them in a different chemistry and predict what other chemistries life could have. Does it give you any and, u- unique insights into evolution? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, and so, so a few things that we found is one that all biochemical networks on earth, whether you're looking at an individual or an ecosystem or the planetary scale biochemistry have the same structure to the network. So the Hmm. patterns of how the molecules and reactions come together, they also have very regular patterns across, um, size of the, the system, which is just how many, how many compounds are in, in that biochemical system, as far as what kind of reactions they use. Um, and I think that this um, might provide insights into evolution to answer your question because it prov- provides a universal set of constraints mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. what biochemistry does, is, can is. Ha- what properties it can have. So, so, for example, the kind of constraints might be the ratios of the different types of reactions that are in any biochemical system. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and so so what we we have a paper we're working on now that shows that um, the reaction types have these universal patterns, and that um, consensus models of the last universal common ancestor are con- consistent with those universal hmm. uh, patterns. So, hmm. um, the and the last universal common ancestor is sort of the earliest model of life on Earth that we have, um, and it's called universal because all all biological organisms that we have now, if you converge their history in the past are supposed to converge on this, this one universal model. Um, and what we've shown is it's actually universal at this level of abstraction, this kind of coarse grain description that doesn't care about the specific molecules. It just cares about these kind of larger pa- patterns. patterns. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I could get really crazy with the set of ideas and, and, and provocative, but one of the things I'm really interested in is like at what level of um, that sort of, uh, coarser or statistical description, do we actually start to see these universal patterns emerge? Because we know, um, and so we're doing all kinds of things looking at different scales of biochemistry to try to figure out when does it actually start to have um, what I would call like a living universality class. Like these are the properties all living chemistry should have versus these are the properties specific to life on earth. And and I think we might be able to tweeze that out by making some analogies with um, uh, physics of like the renormalization group and, and maybe even uh, deep learning algorithms about how the biosphere has been learning properties of its planet, but Renormal, um, renormalization theory is that what you said? Yeah, so that that's from physics, which is is a, a very deep idea in physics about how you can take a theory at one scale and turn it into a theory at another scale. Uh. Um, and so it has to do with these ideas of emergence. It was one of the first places that we really could understand the relationship between theories that we have at different levels of description. And I think there might be an equivalent theory for the way biology is organized, at least at the chemical level across scales. And that might provide some insights into what life is as a, in terms of how it, it exists as an abstract set of relations in a real chemistry. Um, We're there. I think we've yeah. covered, I think we've run we've run the run the cycle. 
<laughs> yeah. So that that was a yeah that was get a little wild at the end. There's some there's some really um, interesting connections that like my brain is just wanting to make and I don't even understand them yet. So so that's that's, so that's what they are. Fascinating. Um, well, listen, I, I thank yeah. you for spending some time and expanding my own yeah. mind. I hope I hope you have done so with our listeners as well. This is uh, I mean I hope also you inspire some people. To, I mean you started at community college level and look where you are. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, yeah. and I think that's spectacular. And congratulations. How, how you're, where are you teaching now? Uh, Arizona State University. Yes, associate director. That's the bio. That's the Center for Biosocial Complex Systems. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science. Uh, I'm looking for those other stuff. Uh, you went to Dartmouth for your PhD. You are you any books or anything coming out? Um, I do have a book I'm working on right now, um, which is with Riverhead, and it should be coming out uh, possibly the end of next year. And what will we learn in that book? Yeah. What will we learn? Um, about a lot of the stuff that we talked about today. Yeah. I mean, is it something the average person can pick up and and get through? Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to rate it as a popular level book because yeah. I, I really think um, – uh, to the point of some of our discussion today that trying to challenge some of our conceptions about what life is and what we are and think about these questions more deeply is actually really critically important to the moment in history that we're in I, and I, trying to think about our future and what and what we are and what our potential is. I, I, um, I agree with you philosophically. I also think just from a practical standpoint that people need more exercise in this kind of thought. Yes. Yes. You know, we need to we need to we need to challenge ourselves to think these things through. That that don't it, it helps people uh, see that there are deeper ideas, deeper structures, deeper phenomenologies. If if they can get there, but you don't get there by yourself. Like you, we said earlier, you have to right. you have to have an. I I couldn't have had this journey without you, uh, and and I probably only took eighty percent of the pathway with you. You know, but but I feel expanded by having done so, and I can't wait for the book. Do you, do you have a teller for it yet? Um, not yet. All right. Well, you'll let us know, yeah? Yes, I will. For sure. Okay. Well, that will do it. Anything else you want to say before I wrap things up? No. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. Good. Um, it, was, it was fun I for me too. And, I, and I, I know I, I come in vague, but I, I know I want to talk to some – I know when I need to talk to somebody and you're definitely one of those people and uh, it did not disappoint. And I thank you so much for spending some time with us. Yeah. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Sarah Imari Walker. And you can see her – do I have your Twitter? Yes. Twitter at, at Sarah underscore Imari, I-M-A-R-I. Talk to you soon, Sarah. All right, thanks. All right, we'll see you Bye. next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D R D R E W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.